0: We want to be that major player. If we can engage a million people in the U.S., that's enough where a significant chunk of the entire country will know who we are.
1: Welcome to Learning Unboxed, a conversation about teaching, learning, and the future of work. This is Annalise Corbin, Chief Goddess of the PASS Foundation and your host. We hear frequently that the global education system is broken. In fact, we spend billions of dollars trying to fix something that's actually not broken at all, but rather irrelevant. It's obsolete. A hundred years ago, it functioned fine. So let's talk about how we reimagine, rethink, and redesign our educational system. So welcome, everybody. I am super excited, as always. Today, we're going to have a conversation about Quite frankly, I'm, I'm hoping we're getting into a lot of the nuts and bolts about a culture of giving and philanthropy and caring in the world. And so today was a little bit different um, sort of conversation for us because we're going to be talking about um, a relatively new program and an entrepreneurial mindset uh, that has hopes for changing the world. And so we're going to be talking about the 52 Million Project. And joining us today is founder of the 52 Million Project, um, Imran um, Nuri, uh, who is a 23-year-old entrepreneur who's running this nonprofit called the 52 million project out of Columbus, Ohio. So welcome, Imran.
0: Yeah, thanks so much for having me. I'm excited to talk more about it and talk more about the future and present of giving right now.
1: Absolutely. And joining him is um, Shannon McCalmont, who is uh, relatively new to the, the 52 Million Project, comes to the program from um, as, as a student. Um, it was an internship that, that got you there, but now you're part of the, the team. And so we're going to hopefully get into some of the nuts and bolts about what that experience has been like as well. So welcome, Shannon.
2: Thank you so much. I'm so happy to be here and kind of give a student perspective to the culture of giving as well.
1: And there is uh, not a time, I, I suspect, that uh, a culture of giving is more important than it is right now. So let's, let's start at the, the very sort of highest level when we think about this. So, Imran, sort of tell us what was your inspiration? Because I want you to tell that story. I know it was sent over to me by the staff and um, it made me smile and chuckle and just remember my own childhood in many ways as well. So, so give us the backstory. Where did this whole idea come from?
0: Yeah, the 52 million projects idea. Uh, yeah, I came up with the idea in 2017, but I think the inspiration for it goes way back to when I was a kid. I grew up, I was fortunate to have everything I needed and everything, all the basic necessities, but I was growing up where uh, my parents were on the tail end of coming out of poverty. You know, so for that reason, I would often hear the phrases, we just can't afford that. We, you know, this week, we just can't afford that this month. And it was often really small things. Uh, despite that, my parents used to do this interesting thing where they would keep cleaned out Jif peanut butter jar above our fridge, and at the end of each week, they would bring it down. They would hand me a dollar or loose change, or sometimes on a good week, a couple dollars, and I would put it in that jar. And they would put it back up there. And at the end of each month, we would donate that money to villages in India. And I would often ask them, you know, why are we doing this? And they would say, you yeah, know, we know we can't afford everything that we want right now. But there are a lot of other people out there who don't even have the basic necessities. You know, They don't know where their next meal is coming from. They don't know what they don't have clothes to wear. They don't really have a, a secure home to live in. And those people need this money more than us. So that's how I learned how to give. You know, that, that was taught to me at a really, really young age. And that stuck with me. And now we're trying to teach a million people the exact same thing. And not everybody needs to learn it. But... It's that power of having a lot of people come together to do a relatively small act of good that adds up quickly. You know, for example, yesterday was Giving Tuesday. Okay. We had twenty-five new people sign up, and twenty-five doesn't seem like a lot, but it's an extra thirteen hundred dollars for our nonprofits over the next year. So it's kind of teaching that principle.
1: Yeah, and it's um, I I would I would disagree a little bit. I think people do need to learn this, right? I, I think that we. Often, even if we we grow up with the experience of of not having plenty, I think sometimes the 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 whole process, maybe that's really what I'm trying to get at, the process of giving and deliberately thinking about giving is. Is something that you know certainly in in my world and in, in my work with so many different um, communities and cultures and lots and lots of students. It's not necessarily something that I think people come to naturally. I think that people though find great joy in learning how to make it part of their everyday, um, and that's I think the other piece of the joy in it. Uh, that's. That's possible. So, when you sort of think about then that that was your experience, how do you then go from here's what I learned growing up and it has deep personal meaning to me to I'm going to start a nonprofit? So, walk us through that that piece of it? Because you're an extremely young guy with a massive vision and good on you. We need more, more like you in the world. But how do you really make that leap? Because I, I talked to and interview lots and lots of folks who have brilliant ideas, but they never actually make the leap.
0: Yeah, there are a couple of things that pushed me in the direction to actually say, I'm going to work on this full-time and I'm going to find a way no matter what it takes to be able to do this full-time. Uh, one of those was... I interviewed for an internship when I was a student. I interviewed for an internship with JPM, JPMorgan Chase mm-hmm. in New York. And I remember showing up to that interview and they asked me all these questions about why I wanted to be there and work for them. And I almost drew a blank. You know, it was just like, oh, wait, mm-hmm. I don't want to be here. <laughs> um, <laughs> so that's, that's one of those things that made me realize, oh, you know, my my degree at the time was finance. I graduated with marketing. But at the time, I thought, let me go into investment banking. It's a secure job that will give me a a really cushy salary and I can be philanthropic on my own time. But after going through that and then meeting with a lot of other people across the country who um, are in the space of just giving and helping people, I started to realize that I don't want to wait until I'm retired to, to give back mm-hmm. and spend my time giving, I said, I, I'm going to find a way to do this right now. And I'm going to do it with this idea that I truly, truly believe in.
1: Wow. You know, that's, um, it's amazing. And, and so brave in a sense that you recognized in that moment that you, you were not headed down the path that was going to give you joy or that you wanted to do. And, you know, lots of folks, I don't think would necessarily have the courage to say, mm, never mind.
0: <laughs> yeah, it's a, it was a big step. And it, uh, it didn't just affect me. For example, I was part of an honors program and that honors program's results at the end of each of those two years of the program are based on where those students are going and how much they're making and what was their bonus. And I did not contribute to that at all <laughs> by starting something <laughs> that is brand new with a very minimal salary salary. And you know, little to no name recognition in comparison to something like J.P. Morgan Chase.
1: Right, right. But but still, still a meaningful thing to do, obviously, um, and one that was that that meant a lot to you, clearly. So, Shannon, I want to I want to touch base with you just a minute, sort of at this juncture in the conversation, because you know, so so Imran starts this this thing, right? It's it's up, it's going, it's doing, and then so tell us how how do you even get connected with it in, in, in at the very beginning much less where you are with it right now but how did you, how was that first sort of step for you
2: yeah so i heard about it through actually the same honors program that imran was just talking about um, as he was leaving the program i was coming into it didn't know imran didn't like hear about the 2 million project but it was um sent in like an email like he was looking for a marketing intern and i was like oh i wonder what this is and i started looking into it and i was just so moved by by his mission and the concept was so unique to me. Um, I'd never really heard anything of it, and um, I learned like kind of to give at a young age as well with um, an experience I had with my mom when I was like six years old. And so it was already something that I felt passionate for, and I felt like there's a lot of barriers as a student to philanthropy. One of those being being a broke college student, not having a lot to give, not thinking you're able to be a philanthropist, as well as not knowing where to give or not doing it on a consistent or often basis and I felt like this hit all three of those categories so well and I like wanted to I just wanted to share it and like being a marketing intern, that's what your goal is is to share it and get people to sign up and get people to see the vision. And so I was bought in right away and I knew it was something I'd want to tell my friends about so they could give their one dollar a week to a different nonprofit every week. And all of those little like barriers were just like gone with the fifty two million project for coming from a student's perspective. So let's dig
1: into that just a little bit more, Shannon. So then you know you find out about it, you you opt to participate, so talk to us a little bit about um, sort of the support structures, if you will, around the internship and, and and I'm asking this question for for a reason because we actually have a fair number of episodes, and certainly at the past foundation. Uh, where i am we we invest a lot of time energy effort resources in the space of mentoring whether they be young folks or older folks into knowing how to actively engage in that thing and it can be a learning opportunity it can be a company it could be a research project it doesn't make any difference but but there's it, The support necessary to be successful in the endeavor that you were brave enough to go and try is a really, really big deal. And it's one of the things that I think that is not baked in naturally into a lot of folks' foundational experience. So, you know, I'm suspicious um, that, that Imran actually is really, really great at mentoring. Otherwise, he wouldn't have made the choices that he did, or, or be as successful as he is in that moment. And so, I'm, I'm putting you on the spot just a little bit here because I really want to know how how was where was the, ins- the the assurances, I guess, that you were going to be successful in that internship.
2: Yeah, I think one of the coolest things was was coming on five months after this whole thing even began, um, being like the first person that Imran really hired. It was just like us two, and then. One other guy nick who kind of does freelance work for us as well but i think what really helped in the support was the autonomy that imran gave me um we were kind of just like starting off and there was not really a game plan and he was like take it i trust you um and if it doesn't work like you can clearly see something this small if, if things are working or not just based on the numbers so if it's working continue it dive into it like learn um and if it didn't then you you failed but you forward, and you learned and you grew from that. Um, another thing that was great with the support system from Imran was he always made sure like we had a vision together and um, individual goals within that vision. So on my first day of my internship, we sat down and wrote five really tangible goals that I evaluated midway through. And midway through, we realized some things weren't being met, and he changed my workload so that I could meet my individual goals for me to grow into the person that I wanted to be at the end of this internship. So it was an awesome,
1: awesome experience. I I am feeling awesome for you in that experience because uh, you know, I, I talked to lots of folks who've done internships or are leading internships and um and that you don't necessarily hear people talk about the opportunity to sort of craft the path and to evaluate the path um along the way. So Imran, I'm really curious. So what what was it from your background or your own experience that that taught you how to do that? I mean, what what makes you an effective leader?
0: Yeah, there are a couple of things I think that taught me more about how to be a better leader, but also how to be a good uh, a mentor. And I think on the leadership piece, one of my biggest experiences throughout college at Ohio State was being able to serve as the primary leader for uh, an organization called Buckeye And Buckeye Thon raises money for childhood cancer research. So I through Buckeye I was overseeing a team of about 130 students who are overseeing uh, about 5,000 more student participants. And it was an organization that brought in about 30,000 donors. So, you know, at, at um, let's see, I was 21, I think. Yeah, I was 21 at the time. it was a really young age to be tackling and, and leading such a massive organization and that ultimately brought in $1.7 million in donations my year. So that taught me a lot about... Uh, delegation, about interpersonal management, like conflict management, every everything that you would need to run a multi-million dollar organization. And the mentorship piece comes from both that and having a lot of really strong mentors who helped me through that experience and continue to help me to this day. I really do take note of what they do for me and how I can pay that forward. And you know often my mentors are you know, twice my age. And so uh, it sometimes feels weird to, to do the same things that they're doing or give similar advice, but if I can pay it forward and kind of um, pass on my knowledge, however I can, and and it, it will ensure that the people I'm taking care of are set up for success, and that gives me a lot of satisfaction as well.
1: Is exactly the way people learn best, right? By by grabbing the things that work, um, that you were able to connect with, and then turning that into the opportunity to teach somebody else. So that that's that's awesome. So let's let's dig in just a little bit, Imran, and, and let's let's talk about the fifty-two million project itself. So. We got the big overview and where it came from, but explain to us how it works specifically, and and what I, I want to know—not just the nuts and bolts of how the process works, but then then how do you know the individual donors? Um, you know, where's the decision making about the who or what is being supported along this way? Because there's, there's there's an awful lot of philanthropic opportunities that are out there in the world. So how and why? should somebody want to be part of this effort as opposed to something else?
0: Yeah, I'll answer that first part um, first about how it works. So at its core, 52 million project is just about having people give no more than $1 for each week of the year. And that dollar goes to a different nonprofit fighting poverty every week. So it's an affordable, automatic, simple way to do a lot of good. And of course, relies on a lot of people doing this together. So, you know, right now we have a little bit over 500 donors, which means that each year we're able to give. uh, From this point onward, over over the next year, we'll be able to give over twenty six thousand dollars. It's only asking for a dollar a week from each person, though. And it's kind of we always say that we're democratizing philanthropy. We're making philanthropy something that everyone can be a part of, not just America's one percent. And so that's how fifty two million project works. The reason, we, you know, the reason why someone would join 52 million projects, there are a couple reasons. I think a big one is that they want to be part of a movement. And we're talking about wanting to get a million people to do this. And right now, we're in our first year. So anybody who's joining this first year at one point is going to say, I was one of the first 500 donors. Uh, how neat is that? You know? Um, and another reason, of course, is because it's an affordable, accessible way to do good. A lot of people, especially this year, 2020, a lot of people are falling on hard times and want to be able to make a difference, but maybe they can't make that $100, that $200 gift that they are used to making. This is a way for, for, for someone to say, okay, I can still support 52 different nonprofits fighting poverty every year, and all it takes is $1 a week. That's it. And so we do have a lot of donors. I call almost every single one of our new donors and sometimes they pick up, sometimes they don't, but when they do, I ask why, why did you join? And often they say, well, I can't really afford to give more, but I like that I can give just a dollar a week with this because I still feel like I'm making a difference and I see where my money is going because our donors see every single week, which nonprofit they're supporting.
1: Really awesome. So, Shannon, tell us a little bit about how you select those fifty two nonprofits. And is it going to be the same fifty two you know one a week every year, or are they going to change? or so what's the what's the the process around sort of where and how uh, that
2: money every week goes someplace? Yeah, so there's a website called Charity Navigator, which is a super Credible site that ranks charities um, like one through five stars. So we kind of start there, and we also really focus on ones in Columbus as well, just because that's probably the home base for many of our donors. Both of us being from Ohio State, so we we start really actually at Ohio or at looking at the Columbus nonprofits, and then we go to Charity Navigator and we look for those nonprofits that are four or five stars um, in the Midwest area and they all have to have the goal of fighting poverty. And that can look like a lot of different things. That could be working to reduce homelessness. That could be working on food insecurity. That could be working on incarceration. Honestly, anything that poverty is such a wide umbrella. And so it's kind of cool that you get to see all the little, you get to help a lot of the different um, little pathways from that. Um, This upcoming year, I don't think we're planning on repeating the same two. I think we're gonna keep, looking for new ones, and so we can make the biggest impact in the most amount of places. It's ambitious, right?
1: And it's also, um, I have to imagine that it's a little bit daunting and overwhelming, especially, you know, uh, know, we've been alluding that 2020 has been a really, really tough year. And the need, even in our own community, I love that you started local uh, with what's happening because I would imagine that would be one of the questions that folks have, right? You know, I I can afford to do a dollar a week. Um, I want to do it locally. You know, I want to make a difference in my local community. But the need in our community is it's, it's pretty intense, and during the current. Pandemic that has been accelerated for many. So how how do you, how do you how do you decide outside of the rating systems when it sort of comes down? And and did you change course partway through because of the need this year, or or were you able to sort of stay where where you were? And either one of you can answer that question.
0: Yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll tackle that question there. You know, we yeah we started this before the pandemic started we definitely did not see that coming at all and you know nobody saw that coming but what we realized is that we actually did pivot right as covid was was starting to hit the us really hard we took that entire q2 to put out surveys do a lot of research and make the changes we needed to because before that before q2 of 2020 we had three different impact areas And the model was that people would still give a dollar for each week of the year, but they would pick an area and then we would do the work to vet and select a couple nonprofits who would who would receive slightly larger grants. Now that was all fine and dandy, but it was kind of hard for our donors to explain to their friends. And it was hard to to, to engage our donors regularly. And so we made the switch to supporting a different nonprofit every week as a way of, you know, partially as a way to combat the challenges that COVID has presented for nonprofits and a, a major lack of funding that, they, that they're seeing in 2020. So we're like, let's support a different nonprofit every single week. Let's show our donors every single week so that we can engage them regularly and they can see and they feel like there's a sense of accountability with their dollars. That was a major shift and it's played out really nicely. You know, we've pretty much doubled the number of donors we've had since making that change. And you know, we didn't see really like, we saw maybe 20 donors total come in in Q2 when we were just leaving things as they were, because it was hard to understand. It was hard to see the impact. Now it's really easy to see the impact. Just this morning, I got an email from the nonprofit we supported last week called Sarah Circle in Chicago. They help homeless women, and I asked them, you know, what is what is our what's our donation going to do? About 500 dollars, and she said it's going to pay for one woman's security deposit, which is often the barrier to getting a home for homeless women. And so that's often the reason why they continue a cycle because they don't have the $500 it takes to put down a security deposit. So, you know, that that makes us feel good and it makes our donors feel good because there's one person who can break that cycle of poverty and homelessness because our donors chose to give $1 last week. Um, So yeah, you know, there's a lot of reasons why uh, this is right for this time. And why this new model works so well, given the circumstances of COVID?
1: I'll be really intrigued, and I'm and I'm going to follow and watch. I, I commit to that because I think that what you've what you're you're doing is a it's so important, but it's inventive. It's so outside the mold uh, in this space, and I I I applaud that because I I think that and then and I I want to dig in just a little bit, Shannon, on the donors themselves. Because I do think that people, you know, we talked about lots of folks have some experience with giving, some have none, and are looking looking to sort of grow that sort of culture in, in their own world in their own lives. But donors are looking, I think, for something different, not the same old thing, or not the thing that they perceive to be just what's, what's always gone on. So let's talk a little bit about these donors. So, so are we talking about just? Young folks, are we talking about a mix of folks? Are we talking about young professionals? Are we talking about you know older people? Where, 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 or who, I guess, is your donor base and how do you grow that base? So it's a two-parter,
2: yeah. Honestly, we have gone back and forth throughout the summer: like, who are we targeting? Who is our target market? Our donors come from literally everywhere, we have people. I know my grandparents are donors, my parents are donors, and then a ton of my college friends are donors. I do just think the the main thing is that it's such an easy way. And it's honestly, I like to call it a subscription to philanthropy or a subscription to nonprofits. It's automatic, it's so affordable, and it, it that's like with the subscription mindset of our world, you're paying like what? a month for Spotify or $9 a month for Netflix or whatever. It's just what you should do for nonprofits. And I feel like that just stands out to people. And I think it can stand out to anyone, whether they have a a large income or a small income if they're a college student, if they're, or if they're like 85, I think that's just something that it's more of the movement and less of, I guess, the resources that you have. That's a really, really intriguing thing. And so, so Amron, how
1: do you, how do you grow it? What happens next? to truly, truly make it sustainable because I love the subscription idea because to your point, Shannon, it's easy, right? It's really, really easy. So I can I can set my subscription in place, but Imran, over time, even if I let that automatically renew and I don't even think anything else of it again, which is not what we want, obviously, but, but as simple as that part of it is, right, um, you know, we have subscriptions on our, our iTunes account or whatever it happens to be. So so we're a culture that's used to doing that. But how do you truly make it sustainable and and, and to grow in that sense?
0: I think, yeah, I think one of the, the biggest ways to make it sustainable and, to, and and really scalable is to continuously engage um, new companies or new schools. And so those two have been like big, big focuses of ours and thinking about how, let's say you engage a company that has a thousand employees and this company works with us to really push it internally and say, you know, give a dollar a week through the 52 million project and we'll match it. You know, that allows us to get hundreds of new donors. And we can repeat that because there's no shortage of companies or schools. And so when we, when we launched, we initially thought, let's target only college students. And we'd scale that way. There are like 8 million college students in the US. But it, it is pretty difficult to engage students. Students in general are high effort high effort to, to engage. And I saw that a lot as I, lead, I led buckeye Um, but Buckython has a reputation, so that made it easier for them. Uh, with companies, it's, it's easier because you know that these individuals are salaried, and so you know that they have the income for the most part, especially when you're working with um, those larger ones who are paying pretty well. And so that's how we think about growing, it's that. And then also one of the big features we have is something called secondary impact. So because we limit our donors to giving no more than $52 each year. We said, if you want to give more, use this custom referral link that's automatically generated for you, share it with your friends and family, and it takes them to the website as usual. But when they start giving, those new donations will will be attributed as secondary impact of the first person. So if I tell 10 people, my individual impact stays $52, but my secondary impact is $520 because I've told 10 people. So I get to see that in my little portal that we also have. So that's one of those ways. It's, it's engaging companies, schools, and then also making it really easy to share so that they can get more friends to, to get involved with, with us.
1: The crowdsourcing philanthropy.
0: Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's right. It is. It's like crowdsourcing philanthropy.
1: It's it's an intriguing mix in my mind, and and please correct me if I'm wrong, but I, I see a combination of a crowdsourcing meets hackathon meets startup innovation, right? You know, kind of all twisted together and said, hey, and by the way, we're only going to do good in the world, so you know, play play in this game with us because look what we're going to be able to do. That beats Angry Birds any day, right?
0: Yeah, that's right. Yeah, it might not give you the uh, immediate satisfaction of knocking over a tower of birds, but uh, you know, it feels good to see every week what a dollar can do for someone.
1: That is awesome. And so then um, one of the the ways I always try to to close out these conversations is recognizing that, you know, we've we've got a, an awful lot of folks that listen to the program and are contemplating how can I take elements of what I've heard and either implement it myself in my own community or, and here's the twist I want to put on that, you know, how do we shift this notion of a everyday culture of philanthropy? How do we make that just common nature instead of something that I have to aspire to want to be? how, How or where could Could more folks how could we leverage our schools our k12 our elementary our middle schools for example, right to shift this dynamic so ten years fifteen years down the road when 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 these kids you know are eighteen and making their own choices that they don't think twice about joining the fifty two million project
0: yeah, something I think that Shannon and I share is that story that we learned how to give when we were really young and that habit stayed with us as we grew older and so I think that Part of creating an overall culture of philanthropy being something that everyone does and you don't really think twice about, you don't have to aspire to be a philanthropist, I'm air quoting right now. (laughs) You know, I think part of that is building the habit now and it doesn't have to be big. And so that's kind of where we want to be that major player. If we can engage a million people in the US, that's enough where a significant chunk of the entire country will know who we are. And it's an example. It's just, you know, your friend, you're gonna hear it at some point, if you're not a part of it, you're gonna hear your friend say, Yeah, I donate a dollar a week automatically, and I see where it goes, and it's so easy to give. And that that you know, there's plenty of research that shows that starting that habit stays with people and it increases their giving over time. So I think that, you know, as a, a selfish plug, we are part of the start of that culture, that overall culture of giving being accessible and an easy thing to do for everyone. But I, I think also starting people young, you know, when when you, when you teach your kids to give, even if they're only giving a quarter, even if they're only giving a dime, you know, they're putting you know, there's those like spinning things at the Sam's club or Costco, where you see your penny go around and around. Even if your kids are doing that and you say, you know, you actually help someone by doing that, even though it was fun, that habit, believe it or not, sticks with people as they grow older. So yeah that's what I would say about it. I don't know about you Shannon if you have any thoughts about how we create that culture of everyday giving.
2: I think you really hit it on the head there. I would just say removing that exclusive title from philanthropy like from being a philanthropist is is like the huge start to it and just being able to talk about it freely and and just like encourage it. Yeah, young with kids if like have their parents give them a dollar to give to someone else like Imran's or teaching it in schools more like having activities where even if it's like fake monopoly money, having them just like learn that process because there's research like giving makes people happier. It's something that should be accessible to all of us and doesn't have to be this exclusive thing.
1: Absolutely. I think that, that's so, so very well put. And and I certainly, in our own experience of the past, we we have seen the power and the benefit of that. We, we read these... Um, not during COVID, unfortunately, but most of the time we run these um, these events in the in the fall and the spring called Maker Mania. So we do them on a Wednesday night. They're for little kids, right? To come and do some fun STEM activities, and it's a free event. But to come in the door, you have to bring. Something and every month it changes, right? So some sometimes we're giving, um, you know, canned goods to the food bank, or sometimes we're collecting mittens because it's winter time, right? And you know, we 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 see the kids; they're so excited. They come in the door and they come over and over. And you know, it's a lot of the same kids that come month after month after month. And after a few times, they're as excited to give you the thing to give to put in that pile for the donation as they are, you know, to come in and play. And I think that that's some of the shift, uh, similar shift that what, what you're doing with the 52 million project is going to have that long-term impact. So... That's awesome. So, I, I want to thank both of you very much for taking time out of your day and joining us. I, I, I'm really, really excited. And I know this was a very different sort of episode for our listeners, but I hope that you will internalize what you heard today and figure out how you could take a lot of the ethos that we heard about in the 52 million project and find ways to build it directly into lessons you're teaching in your classrooms or in your community center, um, you know, in, your, in your churches. Um, you know, take your pick. Um, you know, to, to actually take these ideas um, and run with them and hopefully it'll be part of the 52 Million Project. So thank you both.
0: Yeah, thanks so much for having us. We really appreciate the chance to talk more about democratizing philanthropy.
1: I'm going to use that. I'm going to tell everybody, you know, here's the work. I love it. Thank you for joining us for Learning Unboxed, conversation about teaching, learning, and the future of work. I want to thank my guests and encourage you all to be part of the conversation. Meet me on social media at Annalise Corbin and join me next time as we stand up, step back and lean in to reimagine education.